go over to the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter number 3 this morning, Nehemiah chapter 3, when you find your place I'll have you stand, we will read a few verses of scripture and see what the Lord has for us this morning, Nehemiah chapter 3. This is the order of the Jews as they begin to rebuild the wall in Jerusalem. Verse 1, the Bible says in Nehemiah chapter 3, Then Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brethren, the priests, and they builded the sheep gate. They sanctified it and set up the doors of it, even under the tower of Mia. They sanctified under the tower of Hananiel. Look at verse number 10. And next unto them repaired Jediah, the son of uh, Harumath, however you say that word, even over against his house. And next unto him repaired Hadash, the son of uh, Hashabaniah. I'll go to verse 23. We'll just hit a couple of verses here this morning. After him repaired Benjamin and Hashab over against their house. After him repaired Azariah, the son of Maasiah, the son of Ananiah, by his house. Look at verse number 29. After them repaired Zadok, the son of Immer, over against his house. After him repaired also Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate. After him repaired Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanan, the sixth son of Zalaph, another piece. After him repaired Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, over against his chamber. Sounds like a bunch of building going on. And that's what I'll preach about this morning. Brother Bean, why don't you ask the Lord's help in the preaching this morning? Amen. Thank you. you. May be seated. Here in Nehemiah chapter 3, as you can obviously tell, the work has begun. The work has begun on the walls of Jerusalem. In our brief interlude so far from the book of Joshua, what we looked at here in Nehemiah, we looked at in chapter 1, we looked at recognizing the need. And we definitely have the need. And that need that we have has to be shown to us by the Lord. I think it's safe to say this morning, not to re-preach that message, but you and I hardly know the needs that we have. Not only that, we then looked at our preparation and equipment in chapter number 2, and then facing the challenge in the Christian life in chapter 2. And let me tell you what, there's a bunch of challenges that we face, isn't there? Especially when you try to do something for the Lord. But here we see, uh, the, we, we see in chapter 3 the entire city is in ruins. It's, it's, it's an absolute disaster. So naturally the question appears, where do you start? Where do you start? Where do you begin? If everything's demolished, if everything's destroyed, if everything is disheveled, where in the world do you begin? Uh, I've taken note over the years of the Amish. The Amish have an incredible work ethic. If you buy something from the Amish, it's usually pretty quality. 
I mean, it's, it's, uh, we in America, we mass produce things and they become so chintzy and cheap, it's not worth much at all. But if you buy something from the Amish, it's usually pretty good craftsmanship. Or uh, any Amish baked goods, man, they're really good. Not good for you, but they're really good. And they have a, an incredible work ethic. Uh, what they'll do, uh, you may be familiar with this, they'll gather together as many beards as possible, or many as men as possible, and uh, they'll all get together, you know, however many, 100 or so, and they'll build a barn in one day. Just It'll go up just like that. And, uh, well, that's pretty good, especially if you need a barn. Amen? I mean, uh, it's, it's interesting. Uh, they, can, they can swing a hammer like nobody else, like uh, these professional builders have been doing all their life. Not all that. Uh, th- they've got these little uh, screwy deals, and they put the screw in. and just, I mean, that whole thing's right in there like that. And they don't mess around. Uh, you have to force them to take a break. Uh, and uh, so it's pretty interesting. Also in the work world, uh, you're probably familiar with it, especially at the corporate level, uh, what they'll do, an entire corporation will often descend upon a goal or an object to get it done. Now you could have six places, six, uh, six different buildings, and they'll make everyone stop what they're doing just to get one goal or objective completed. And what they'll do is they say, well, you know, many hands make light work, <laughs> right? And that's their concept. But you know what? Uh, they'll say, we need all hands on deck. That's kind of like the Amish mindset. But in the Christian life, can I tell you this morning that the Lord approaches things a bit differently. He does things different than you do them. He definitely does things different than the Amish does them. And he definitely does things different than corporate America does things. If you're going to build a life and work for Jesus Christ, can I just say this? Most of you know this. It will take your entire life to do it. Now, when you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, it happens instantaneously, without a shadow of a doubt, when the day, the day and moment that you call upon Jesus Christ to save your soul, putting your faith and trust alone in the shed blood of Jesus Christ to forgive you of all your sins, past, present, and future, that thing, that transaction happens right now. It's done. Wesley said, the transaction's done. My heart is free. But there to build a life thereupon and to build a work for Jesus Christ, it'll take the rest of your life to do it. That should be comforting to you because so many people have the business mindset, the Amish mindset, that we have to have instant results like instant potatoes and instant whatever it is we're doing, but it's going to take your entire life to do it. But then again, the question still pervades, it's still there. Where do I start? Remember, Jerusalem is in a mess. It's in a wreck. It's in ruins. One fellow said that the Lord expects you to apply yourself to the part of the work that applies nearest you. There's a lot of country sense in that. What I'm trying to say this morning is here in chapter 3, the Lord does the work singularly. The Lord does the work singularly. And here lies some great learning in this chapter for you and me and just a handful of verses that we read this morning. And what I want to preach about is the starting point of all. The starting point of all in my Christian life is where? Where is the starting point? Where should we start to build a life for Jesus Christ? Should we all rally to the cause and preacher, you should 
put more pressure and made sure everybody was out on the streets. That's not where the Lord starts. Can I show you from the scriptures this morning that the starting point of the Christian life, after you've trusted Him as your Savior, number one, first of all, I have to start with my house. I have to start with my house. Look at verse number 10. The Bible says, And next unto them repaired Jediah, the son of Haramath, even over against his house. I want you to think with me this morning. What God wants done in the Christian life is not for you to... Uh, he does want you to, in time, yoke up with the local church. He wants you to do it with the right motive. Amen. He wants you to do it with the right mindset. The motive is love, by the way, not pressure. Is that okay this morning? The motive is love. He wants you to do something through the local church because you love Him, because you're able to do it, and with the right mindset because that motivation is, you know what, I want to please my Heavenly Father, and one day He'll reward me for doing things with the right motive. I'm thankful this morning that I don't serve a tyrant. I'm thankful this morning I don't serve someone that if I don't just do it exactly right, he's going to kick me into the next solar system. But the mindset and the motive has to be right. But we have to start with our own house. And as I look at this passage, I got to thinking about it. I have to make sure in my Christian life that my foundations are secure. The Bible says over here, I believe it's the book of Psalms. It says, Psalms chapter 11, verse 3, If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? If your foundations as a Christian are crumbled, they're destroyed, what can you do? Well, not very much, because you're tripping over the wreck. You're tripping over the mess. You're discouraged by the inability to erect something, build a life, and build a work for Jesus Christ. So you have to start with your own house, and you have to begin with those foundational things, the foundational doctrines like my salvation. I've got to make sure, first of all, am I actually saved? That's a great place to start. And if I am saved, do I know what the Bible says about salvation? The Bible says He'll never leave us nor forsake us. But you have to trust Christ as your Savior first to claim the promises. To shore up the foundations in your Christian life, you have to, number one, not only be a son of God, have trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, but you sometimes have to take the deep inward look and remove a bunch of garbage that's in the way and make sure your foundations are secured. They built that leaning tower of Pisa in August 9th was the completion date, 1173. Don't ask me why I remember historical facts. I did look at it earlier. It's just like, oh, it's there, you know what I mean? I'm a history weirdo. But anyways, they finished it then. The interesting thing is the word Pisa means marshy. <laughs> Could be a, a, a giveaway why the thing was leaning. And come to find out, scientists found out that the foundation was only 10 feet deep. <laughs> hey, you wonder why it leans, right? Well, concerning the, the, the foundation there, they figured back in the 80s, this thing is going to fall. Oh, no kidding. It's, it wasn't built that way on purpose. They're like, oh, let's, let's build a building or a tower that leans because it's cool. cool. No, it's weird. Scientists traveled yearly during the uh, 70s and 80s to measure the building's slow descent. They reported that a 179-foot tower moves about, moved about 1 20th of an inch a year and by 1980 was 17 feet out of plumb. 
They further estimated back in the 80s that by the year 2007, the 810-year-old tower at that time would have leaned too far and would collapse and take out the nearby restaurant. So like we said, significantly enough, the word Pisa means marshy land. The company with its 10-foot deep foundation, they had to make repairs in 2001. And they made repairs, and of course the technology uh, is pretty incredible these days. They made repairs through a system called soil extraction. And so what they did is they drilled down uh, where the, the foundation was faulty there, and they extracted all this, uh, this soil and all this debris, and they injected concrete into that. So now back in, uh, at the close of 2001, the thing still leans, but they fixed the foundations. They shored it up. You know what some Christians need to do today? You need to shore up the foundations of your Christian life. You need to drill down deep into those places you can't see where the marsh and the garbage is at. And you need to extract that stuff out and you need to inject the Word of God into your foundation and get solid and get fixed on that thing. That's what's needed. Good, you got to fix the foundation. There was a fellow by the name of uh, Lloyd, Frank Lloyd Wright. And back in the 40s and 50s, he was given the challenge of building the Imperial Hotel in Tokyo. The Imperial, beautiful hotel. And, uh, of course, uh, you may know, you may not know. I've got this little app now. It's kind of, I'm a geek about this thing. And it uh, gives you uh, earthquakes every day. It's a free app, you know. You say, well, I'm hoping one hits our hometown. No, just kidding. <laughs> right? And uh, like yesterday, there were 63 earthquakes that went off in the 24-hour period of time. Uh, anywhere from 5.1 to all the tiny ones, like 2.5, and all over the world, all these fault lines and, and so forth and so on. But old Frank Lloyd Wright was given the challenge of building the Imperial Hokio, Hokio Hotel in Tokyo, one of the most earthquake-prone cities in the world. So he investigated the matter, and he's like, all these buildings are falling down because it's a place, a bad place to live. I'd probably move. But anyway, they're like, oh, let's build a hotel, you know. <laughs> Great idea, you know. Buildings fall down all the time. Let's build a bigger one. And so what he discovered is in his investigation, if he floated a 60-foot foundation of soft mud underneath the foundation, it would absorb all the seismic activity. If all others scoffed at him, he built the grand, beautiful, big imperial hotel there in Tokyo. And sure enough, as soon as he got that thing built, a year later, one of the biggest earthquakes hit, and that thing stood strong, and many of these other buildings just collapsed into a pile of rubble. You say, why? He figured out the foundation. Christian, why you fall apart? It's not just because you're some wicked old rascal, even though we all sin. It's because your foundation shot. And you got to dig down deep. You got to figure out what's causing the problem. You got to extract the things that are in the way. And you got to do a deep dive. And do I really understand what I've got? Where, why am I tripping up? Why is there all this seismic activity in my Christian life? Look, I know there's afflictions. 1 Thessalonians 3 3 says, We are appointed there too, unto afflictions, unto tough times. But listen, they shouldn't shake us to our core every day. You've got to get the foundation right. And if I'm going to, well, I've got to find the starting point in my Christian life where to build a life for Jesus Christ. Verse 10 says it, my house. I've got to start at my house. Well, I've got to make sure these foundations in my Christian life are secure. And those, those foundations, you know what they should be? They should be fastened 
to the rock. Deuteronomy 32 verse 4, the Bible says he is the rock. Our foundation can only be built upon Jesus Christ. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 11, for other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Not only should our foundations be set up, but our walls ought to be built up. Amen? Upon once your foundation is taken care of and you have a secure foundation, your walls ought to be built up. The Bible says in Proverbs 25, 28, that a man that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down without walls. You say, what are those walls in my Christian life? If you'd just humor me for a minute. You know, a lot of times the walls in your Christian life is your ability to be ruled by the Spirit of God and to have self-control. We live in a day and age where self-control is not even taught, not practiced, and it's not important. You know what the, the world says? Well, do, do what feels good. Do whatever you want. You want to be a weirdo today? Be a weirdo. Oh, you feel like you're going to identify as a dog? Well, then bark at Walmart. Go buy some dog food, you know? Tomorrow you, wanna, you think you're going to be a Fruit Loop or a Martian? Well, you're a Martian. No, that's ridiculous. As a Christian, you have to learn to control yourself, control the flesh, and you got to put up some walls. You can't let everything through in your Christian life. you got to stop letting everyone tell you how to think and what to do and where to go. you got to have some self-control. The foundations have to be secure. The walls have to go up. And how about the windows? The windows, the windows have to be kept shut. You ever stop and think about what you let into the window of your soul? You ever just consider about what goes through your eyeballs all the time? The Bible says over in Joel chapter 2 verse 9, They shall enter in at the windows like a thief. Like a thief. I don't think there's anybody, unless you live out in the country, that keeps the windows wide open in the middle of winter. And I'm pretty sure you all lock your doors. But if you live out in the sticks, you might not. I don't know. We're country folk here. But I'm pretty sure you still lock your door at night. I was reading Reader's Digest. Forgive me just for a moment. I looked through that stuff for good reference material. And Reader's Digest, one of recent issues, said, Most burglars aren't using ladders or ropes or digging holes to get into your house. One gal said, she's a home security expert, according to her research, an overwhelming majority of burglars enter homes through the doors and the windows. The surprising thing is most doors are not even locked anymore. Isn't that something? The surprising thing that everyone has windows in their home that they don't realize it, but they're unlocked. So where do you think they're going to come in at? The one that's not locked. Isn't that just like the Christian life? You know where the stuff gets in? The stuff gets in our life that doesn't belong there when we don't lock the door. We don't lock the window. We say, well, it's okay. Uh, they're not going to barge in here. I'll just leave it unlocked. It's really okay. I, I don't mind. But you know what? If, if someone walked into your home, I've given this illustration before, and began to curse you and your wife out and your children out, you would slap, lay them out on the floor, wouldn't you? You're like, who do you think you are? It's my house. You ain't going to talk to my wife that way. You're not going to talk to my kids that way. Whop! In the name of Jesus. But yet you'll turn that idiot box on and let it cuss in front of you, let it fornicate in front of you, let it tell lies, let it promote all of its devilment. You're like, honey, give me some more popcorn, you know. <laughs> you see what I mean? You've got to lock them doors. 
you got to lock the windows. The foundations get fixed, the walls go up, the doors get shut, the gates get shut, and the windows get locked. That's the Christian life. Where am I supposed to start? The starting point of all is my house. I've got to, get, I've got to start here first. I ain't no good to my local church if I'm a wreck. I ain't good to the community if I'm a wreck. Now, don't just sit there and use that excuse why you never do anything for the Lord. You've got to start with you, and you've got to start with your house. Look, you can't change anybody except yourself, and then you can't even change yourself without the help of the Holy Spirit this morning. The starting point of all is, in fact, my house. Once your foundations are secured, I know you know this, but once your foundations are secure, you throw the walls up, you got self-control, you got the windows locked, and you got everything shored up, guess what? Then you can work on the inside. You can't even work on the inside of your own Christian life until you get all those other things in place. I'm hoping this is making sense today, a practical approach to a historical passage. First of all, if I'm going to get some of the inside work done, I have to examine my own house. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight, but let a man examine himself. Do you realize a Christian life is all about continual self-examination? Self-examination. The first thing you should do in the morning, uh, I know it's coffee, right? <laughs> uh, the first thing in the morning after coffee <laughs> should be self-examination. You say, oh, preacher, I'm... Um I've got, a, I've, got a, I've got a routine in the morning. I'm, well, okay, but self-examination better be in there. You can't go out into life without self-examining yourself. You've got to examine your own house. Uh, so self-examination. Uh, look at uh, Psalm chapter 26. I know you know the passage here, but notice this real quickly with me. Psalm chapter 26. You have to examine yourself. That means you get alone with yourself, <laughs> me, myself, and I, right? And you look at your life, and you look at how you're living, and you say, is what I'm doing pleasing the Lord? Is what I'm doing, is it lining up with what the Word of God says it should line up with? And then when you're done to self-examine, Psalm chapter 26 verse 2 is what David said. Once you're done examining yourself, you need to invite the Lord to do some examining too. I notice here it says here, uh, examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my reins and my heart. Can I just say there's some things that you're probably doing and you mean well by them. And when you look at it, you're like, I'm doing that and you can justify it. But then when you get the Lord in on the thing, Lord, uh, this thing that I'm doing every single day, uh, here's my schedule, here's my life, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Will you take a look at it for me? And the Lord's like, you know what, I really appreciate uh, how you do this and I appreciate how you do that, but you know what? That thing right there is not good for you. And you're like, oh, I never saw it. And the Lord's like, figured it like, well, thanks for asking. Just, just take care of it. We'll be all right. See, you examine yourself, and then you say, Lord, uh, will you take a look at this? Will you take a look at my life? Will you take a look at my heart? Is there a room that I've got locked up that I don't want anybody in there? Well, you ask the Lord that, he'll show you. We examine yourself. You ask the Lord to examine yourself. But here's the thing. Once the Holy Spirit of God shines the light on the dirt in your house, you've got to get rid of it. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. Let us cleanse ourselves. 
let us cleanse ourselves. Stop worrying about everyone else's dirt. Start worrying about the dirt that's in your life, that's in your heart, that's in your mind, that's in your head. Just clean it up. Remember when the, the Lord said to Jacob in Genesis chapter 35 around verse 9, he said, he said go back to Bethel first. You know what J Jacob said? He said, get rid of this junk and be clean. We're going back where God told us to go, and you ain't going dirty. Be clean, he said. You got to get rid of the dirt. You got to clean up. Now, you know that light comes through the book, amen? A good source of light is the King James Bible right in your lap. Psalm 119, verse 130 says, The entrance of thy words giveth light. I'll say it again. The entrance of thy words giveth light. Why Christians are in the dark is because they don't have the light of the Word of God on it. Christians always bumping around, making messes, taking, uh, just busting limbs and busting lies because they're in the dark, not reading the Bible. Light comes from the book. Light also comes by casting off darkness. That's Romans chapter 13 and verse 12. Paul said we are supposed to cast off the works of darkness. You'd be surprised you start getting rid of some of the questionable things in your life that the Bible considers darkness. Oh, what great light follows when the darkness leaves. The, the disappearance of darkness ushers in a great light. Not only are we supposed to cast off those things, those works of darkness in Romans chapter 13, verse 12, but you find over in the book of Ephesians, uh, the book of Ephesians, chapter 5 and verse 11, Paul says not only that, he says, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Not only get rid of them in your own life, but go ahead and if you have the ability, reprove those works of darknesses. All right, fathers, you have a home that you are over, that you lead, that you head up. Reprove the works of darkness. Stop just letting things slide. Watch the light come in like a flood. Well, I've got to examine my house. I've got to ask the Lord to examine me. And I've got to let the light in. Well, let me say this. You start, the starting point of all is my own house. Now, once I work at my own house, and the Lord begins to develop in me and build a life inside of me that pleases Him, can I give you this one, number two? Then, number two, then I might be able to help someone else with their house. Then I might be able to help someone else with their house. Look at verse 23. Bible says here in verse 23, Nehemiah chapter 3, after him repaired Benjamin and Hashab over against, there it is, their house. Their house. Now listen, you'll never help somebody else with their house if you're not willing to take care of your own first. Your house has to come first. You say, well, I just believe, and no, I don't care what you believe. The Bible shows you right through this text right here, you have to start with you. You're no good to anybody else if you don't take care of your house. That's got to be the starting point of all. But then, after a while of taking care of your house and securing the foundations and erecting the right type of spiritual walls and keeping the gates and the doors shut and locked and the windows, the Lord just may let you help somebody else repair their house. I'm telling you what, I can think of a handful of people that helped me repair my house. And I look back and I see, you know what, their house was in order. That's why the Lord used them to help me. Aren't you thankful for those who helped you with your house? Everyone's here today, I believe, because someone had it, their house in order and came to you and said, hey, I just want to let you know your house is on fire. And if we don't do something about it, you're going to burn. 
Now, I find I'm being serious this morning. Uh, uh, for you to help someone else, you've got to start with your house, and then the Lord might be able to help you with their house. You say, well, how am I going to help someone else repair their house? Well, I was thinking about it, and you can help them by encouragement. You can help somebody else repair their house through encouragement. I'll show you a passage of Scripture in here, uh, uh, Isaiah chapter 41. I want you to remember this one, even though it's talking about uh, someone building an idol. I want you to see why, where this world has it, an advantage over you and I. Now, that doesn't mean we go run with the world. But that's why I believe the Lord said that the children of mammon are wiser than the children of light in their own generation. Notice the encouragement that goes on in the world. And here it is, Isaiah 41, 7. So the carpenter encouraged the goldsmith, and he that smoothed with the hammer, him that smote the anvil, saying it is ready for the soldering, and he fast with nails, that it should not be moved. That whole passage there is talking about idols and so forth and so on that you shouldn't have a part of. But here's the point. What's wrong with encouraging one another? Why does the world have to be the one to show us how to get it done? They don't have the hope of heaven. They don't have the Holy Spirit. They don't have Jesus Christ. But you and I as Christians with our house in order ought to be able to encourage one another so they can go on to repair their own home, their own spiritual house. It's to be done with encouragement. A fellow by the name of the Duke of Wellington, he was an interesting character to say the least. The Duke of Wellington... He was a very formidable general. He was very, uh, he, I can't remember how many wins, but he had more than Napoleon did. <laughs> but uh, long story short, the Duke of Wellington, he was not an easy man to serve under. And he was brilliant. He was very demanding. And uh, he was never known to shower any of his subordinates with praise. You know anybody like that? I mean, you do your best. You could cut your own arm off and offer it to them, and they'd be like, yeah, I don't need it today. But, you know, they wouldn't even say thanks. They'd be like, put that back on, you know. The Duke of Wellington in his old age was asked by a young lady if anything he would do differently if he had his life to live over again. History says that Wellington thought about it for a moment, and he says, I'd give more praise. Why don't we do that as Christians? Why don't we encourage more? Why, you know, some of us think we are all that in the bag of chips, as the world calls it. Why not give them a piece of your credibility? Why not give another Christian a, a little bit of a leg to stand on? Well, you know, I don't know. I just want to make sure I'm telling. Oh, stop it. Encourage them for crying out loud. You know how difficult it is out there to live, right? It's ridiculous. Every once in a while, you know what you need? You just need some encouragement. I remember talking to a friend of mine, and he'd, he'd say, uh, he said, Brother Jeremy, he said, uh, for years and years and years, I never thought I needed any encouragement at all. And 30 years later, he says, no, I need some encouragement. And if you're going to help someone else repair their own house because your house is in order, then you know you're, you can do it by encouragement. Just encouragement. You ain't going to lie to them. Just encourage them. Well, you can help them through encouragement. You can help them with spiritual restoration. The Bible says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, Ye which are spiritual, restore such an one. Ye who are spiritual, restore such a one. All right, so if your house is where it needs to be with the Lord, 
Why not look for someone to restore? Restore them. Give them some of your credibility. Give them some encouragement. A fellow said uh, a few years back, an angry man, this had been about 1993, an angry man rushed through the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam until he reached Rembrandt's famous painting, The Night Watch. Then he took out a knife and slashed it to pieces before he could be stopped. A short time later, another hostile man slipped into St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome with a hammer and began to smash Michelangelo's beautiful sculpture, the Pieta. Two cherished works of art were severely damaged. What do you suppose they did? You think they threw them out? No, they took the most skilled professionals you could find and they took meticulous time and hours and hours and days and months and years and they restored it. That's exactly what the Lord wants to do to a Christian. And you take things and you blow them all to pieces, amen? You take your life and you make the wrong move and you just run right into the tree at 50 miles an hour. And you splatter yourself all over life's highway. You know what the Lord does? He's like, well, Evans took the wrong turn again. I got to go get the flat shovel. And he gets down there. He takes, oh, there's an ear. Well, there's not too much brain to salvage there, but we'll pick that up. And he begins to fashion all the pieces back together. Amen. And then when he gets done, you know, he says, ha, that looks better than 20 years ago. Amen. Only the Lord can do that. Amen. The Lord's not in the business of throwing you out. Yes, the Lord's in the restoration business, and that's how you could help someone else build their house. Amen. By taking the time, maybe you can help pick up a few pieces and restore them, encourage them, restore them. There's other ways that you could help someone else build their house. I think you get the picture here this morning. You help build their house by what they say. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, that we're supposed to say those things which is good to the use of edifying. You know what edifying does? Well, edifying is one of those words that actually describes itself. An edifice is a building. I never understood why they call it a building when they're done building it, amen? But when you say something that is edifying, you're actually building someone up. You're building, you're helping build that person spiritually. You're helping build their life. Not only that, but you can help repair their house by pointing them to God in the Bible. Paul says over there in Acts chapter 20, verse 32, he says, And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all of them which are sanctified. You know what we tried to do yesterday on the streets of Tower City? We tried to get the Bible into the hands of as many people as we could because that's a supernatural book and that can actually build something inside of you. It wasn't us. It wasn't our presence. It wasn't our quick wit and whether we could give them or not or whether they accept us. It was the fact that we're able to get the word of God into the hands of the people of this community. Listen, Perchville is one of those things where I believe you had a good representation of your community out yesterday. And if you got 530 or 28 or just whatever we got there, I believe most of those were probably right from this county. You say, yeah, but no one showed up today. That's all right. They don't have to show up. We got 530 of those things into the hand of people. That's 500 and however many households with the word of God inside them that probably doesn't have it. And that's how you can help someone build their house.
Can I give you the last and final thing here this morning? The starting point of all has to begin with my house. And then maybe if my house is in order, my house is shored up, I, maybe I can help somebody else with their house. But I want you to see number three, the further I go in building a life for Jesus Christ, I can never forget to take care of my personal walk with him. Look at verse 30. After him repaired Meshullam the son of Berechiah over against his chamber. You see, repairing my personal fellowship or my chamber with God requires me to avoid the wrong fellowship. You see, you got some work on a chamber there. A chamber is a place that's the innermost place of a house. A chamber is a place uh, when you're specifically dealing with where someone sleeps. Well, that chamber is a great picture of your walk with Jesus Christ. Okay, so I got to start with my house. And then I, if I take care of my house, maybe the Lord will help me help somebody else's house. But the further I go along this thing, I've got to always take care and make sure of my chamber. That's the innermost part of my relationship with the Lord. That chamber, that fellowship has to be taken care of. Repairing my personal chamber with God requires me to avoid the wrong fellowship. You say, all right, preacher, lay it on us. What's the wrong fellowship? I think you know. The fellowship of devils, the yoking up with unbelievers. Amen. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what hath fellowship with righteousness, uh, un righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion hath light with darkness? And how about the fellowship of this world? Let me tell you what, the three main enemies of the Christian life is the world, the flesh, and the devil. Everybody here knows that. And we treat our flesh like it's our friend, and it's not. <laughs> and we're pretty disgusted with the world, and we should be. And we think the devil is just some kind of inanimate foe out there, but he's very formidable. He's very much against us. You've got to watch that stuff. You take that thing about the fellowship of the world, if you don't treat the world as wicked and evil as it is, Galatians chapter 1, 4, the Bible says, who, hath, uh, who gave himself for us, that we, uh, let me read it instead of mess it up. Who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father. Let me say this. If you love the world and you have a constant fellowship with the world, according to that verse, you will not have victory over your sins on a daily basis. Are you struggling with getting victory over your sin? Remember, we're talking about that personal chamber, that inner chamber that you possess. If you have lots of fellowship with the world and not fellowship with the right things, you struggle with getting victory over sins. Let me show you one more on this thought process about the wrong fellowship with the world. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10. The Bible says, Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. I'll say it again. Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. If you love the world, you know what I see here? If you love the world and the wrong type of fellowship with the world, there is no loyalty to the church house. There's no loyalty to the things of the church. There's no loyalty to your responsibility to do something for God. There's no loyalty to give. There's no loyalty to anything of that nature, all because of the wrong fellowship with the world. Demas is a great picture, having loved this present world, and now he goes. Well, let me say this, repairing my fellowship, my chamber with God requires me to adhere to the right type of fellowship. I gave you some wrong. I like to balance it out real quick by giving you some right. Is that all right? You can't have just the wrong. you got to have the right. We'll say, well, all right, preacher, what's the right type of fellowship? I thought you'd never ask. 
first of all, the fellowship that's the right type of fellowship would be the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. The fellowship of the ministering to the saints. That's what we're put here for. Besides pleasing God is to help others. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4, the Bible says, Praying us with much entreaty that we would, in the last part of the verse, take upon us the fellowship of the ministering of the saints. Take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. You realize that God placed us here not only to put a smile on His face, but to minister to other Christians. Minister to other Christians. God gave you your abilities. God gave you the, the, the strength He gave you. He gave you the mindsets He gave you that's a, the good mindset. He gave you the, all the talent that you possess to not only put a smile on His face, to provide for your family, but to be ministering to other Christians. And see, that thing just doesn't happen. You have to take it. It says here, Take upon us the fellowship of the ministering of the saints. As a matter of fact, over 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 15, there's this, uh, there's this household, and they just got so full of it that the Bible says they became addicted to the ministering of the saints. They were just slap addicted to it. Now, everybody here knows what addicted means. And if you're addicted, you've got to have it. And if you don't have it, you're going to get really ornery about it. And isn't it interesting that the only time that that word is used in the King James Bible has to do with the ministering to the saints. I'll read it here. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 15. They have addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. What a thing to be addicted to. I want you to ask yourself a question this morning. Are you addicted to the ministering of the saints? Now, if this family could get addicted, why couldn't you? You say, preacher, I'm doing everything I could. That sounds to me like you're addicted. Now, if there's a gnawing in your heart and a painful, empty quietness, that's not me, that's the Holy Spirit. Well, you've got the fellowship of the ministering of the saints, you've got the fellowship of the gospel. Philippians chapter 1, verse 5, for your fellowship in the gospel from first day until now. That's you taking the gospel of Jesus Christ wherever you go. That's the right type of fellowship. The fellowship in the gospel. You've got the fellowship of his sufferings in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. Now, that's something that none of us want. That's something that absolutely none of us want. I'm talking about the right types of fellowship this morning, the ministering to the saints. Some, I'm telling you, you can get addicted to it if you want to. And then you've got the fellowship in the gospel. And then here you have the fellowship of his sufferings. That means once you start getting a hold of what God has for you, you start getting the power of God. That's Philippians 3.10. And all of a sudden now here comes the suffering. Here comes the pain. Here comes the trouble. Here comes the trial. Here comes the busted up home. Here comes the busted up marriage. Here comes the busted uh, health problem. You see what I mean? What is it? What is it? It's confirmation that you're doing what God wants you to do. The fellowship of his sufferings and finally the fellowship of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. First John chapter 1 verse 3 the Bible says, that which we have seen and heard Declare we unto you that ye may also have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. Here's the fellowship with Jesus Christ. That's just you. That's just one-on-one. -on -one. That's daily. Daily fellowship. Where you have time spent with the Lord. Reading His Word. Spending time in prayer. 
just thinking and meditating about what he's done for you, what you read for the day, thinking about how good it is just to know for sure we will spend eternity when you die. Think of all the things in life that we worry about as Christians. If you're saved, eternity ain't one of them. That's a blessing. And that's all derived from the right type of fellowship, having fellowship with Jesus Christ. Let me ask you this question here tonight before we close. How's your fellowship? Say, preacher, you sure preach a lot about fellowship. I'll tell you the most important thing there is out there. If you're saved today, you know what's important? Your inner chamber. Verse 29 and 30 of that passage. It doesn't matter how long you've been serving the Lord. It doesn't matter how little you've been serving the Lord. What's most important is that fellowship that you have with Jesus Christ. So here it is in all of its grand simplicity, probably the most simple messages I've ever preached. Your house is important first. You've got to get that together before you can then maybe help somebody else. But, God willing, you can help somebody else. Never forget that on the road of life, at that inner chamber, your fellowship remains the most important thing to pleasing the Lord. So it's here, the most great attention must be given, and I have to ensure that my relationship with Jesus Christ is healthy and in good repair. You say, why? Do you want to be useful to him? See, you're still a Christian if it's not healthy, but you're just not useful. I don't know about you, and I don't know how you think, but when I played football, I detested sitting on the bench. And, and I know some people are like, oh, I never sat on the bench, and I went both ways, and I, was, I wasn't that guy. I hated it, and I worked so hard to get off the bench, even though they had a bench, you weren't allowed to sit on the bench. I hated sitting on the sidelines. It irritated the daylights. I'm telling you what, as your pastor, I don't want to be on the sidelines of this life unless the Lord says, sit. I want to do something that pleases him. I want to put a smile on his face. But my house has to come first. And maybe yours. But my fellowship has to remain the centermost figure in this repairing process. Miss Curran comes to play this morning. I'd like to invite you to this altar this morning to take time and ask the Lord where you should start. Say, preacher, uh, you sure you want me to do this? Yeah. This is called an altar right here. A bunch of stinky carpet fibers. But I want to invite you to this altar and say, Lord, where do I start? Where do I need to be? The starting point of all, how's your house? Does it need some help? Does your house need repair? How's the foundations? Are you solid? How's the windows? Are some of them open? Maybe you need to come up here and say, Lord, it's been a little drafty in my house lately. I thought maybe you just show me the windows that are open, you know. He'll show you if you ask him. And then, of course, your fellowship. You come as she begins to play. Ask the Lord where to start.